The Bane Free Radio Hour. Star kingdoms and collapsing empires, kawump. Good men and sons of liberty, hooray! A cool David Weber contest to test your honorverse medal. Michael Z. Williamson crosses swords with the TV series Vikings. Frank Chadwick sticks a fork in it with a new writing suggestion. And live here in the studio, alternate history master Eric Flint. All of this right now on the podcast. Welcome, everyone. We have with us today Bain Editor Jim Menz. Hi, Jim. Hey, everyone. Uh, Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis. Hi, Yo. Hank. And we do have me, Bain Editor Tony Daniel. And we're very excited because we have in studio with us today, right here in our physical presence, where he can actually share in our cat allergies, although I hear he doesn't have them, uh, Bain author Eric Flint. Hi, Eric. Hi. But first, let's get to some news. March is very exciting because we have a new Honor Harrington Honorverse novel by the multiple, multiple international best-selling David Weber. This is the direct sequel to A Rising Thunder, and it's called Shadow of Freedom. And it's number 18 in the multiple, multiple, multiple best-selling Honor Harrington series. Uh, this is about the collapse of the Solarian League and how Honor's Manticoran... Not Manticorian, right, Jim? It's Manticorian. as audible. as audible. Got it. Uh, Star Kingdom deals with, with that situation. Uh, so there's planetary rebellion, conspiracies galore, and of course lots and lots of spaceship battles. So look for that shadow of freedom. Our other new March title is Sarah A. Hoyt's A Few Good Men. This is the sequel to Dark Ship Thieves, but we've got a new hero in this one. So it's the beginning of a new segment of the series. It's a new hero who takes on those eugenic freaks, the good men of Earth uh, in the series, and sparks a planetary rebellion. also want to mention our extremely cool March contest, the one we're collaborating on with the Bunine folks. Uh, what is Bunine, Jim? You... Uh, Bunine is short for Bureau 9. It's actually began, oddly enough, out of gaming. Um, at Astro Games, there are a couple of guys working there, Ken Burnside and Tom Pulp. And David Weber got to know them, was consulting with them on some tech aspects about his books. Uh, Tom also does tech things for the Navy as well as a day job. And next thing you know, David was consulting with them more and more, and it became a more formalized relationship to the point where actually, to plug something that won't be coming out until June, we're actually doing the quote-unquote nonfiction uh, resource book, The Omniverse Companion. It's called House of Steel. And that's actually going to have an original novel by David, a very short novel, uh, what David would call a novella, but actually is long enough to be called a novel, along with all sorts of good stuff about the nonfiction, about the ships. You'll have actually a full-color insert, which shows not only the vessels, but also various insignias and uniforms from the different navies, the Manticora Navy, the Solarian League, the Grayson, all that good stuff. Here's the contest. You, what you do is you design a medal that Honor herself and all the guys in the RMN and the GSN and the RHN will get. This is the medal of the Grand Alliance, the War of the Grand Alliance, where they put down the uh, Solarian League. And you designed the medal. You can either write up your design or you can design it and send in a JPEG or whatever. 
but the Bunine folks are going to create this metal you've come up with and display it on their website. This is totally cool. And you get a free copy of Shadow of Freedom, signed by David Weber also. Uh, details are on the Bain.com website. All right, we want to welcome, once again, Bain author and alternate history master, which I've written many times in ad copy and always felt that it was true when I wrote it. Not hype. Eric Flint to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Hi, how are you? Let me give you a little background on Eric before we go on. Eric's, uh, Eric Flint's writing career began with the 1997 science fiction first contact novel, Mother of Demons, was it? With uh, David Drake, after that, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series and on the general series entry, The Tyrant. Uh, he's also collaborated with a great many other writers, including David Weber, Mercedes Lackey, Dave Freer, Katie Wentworth, Reich E. Spore. The list just goes on and on. What Eric is best known for, though, is his mammoth alternate history. I mean, I think we can call it a movement now. I believe that, that, that 1632 <laughs> qualifies, the Ring of Fire qualifies at this point. The alternate history uh, Ring of Fire series, beginning with uh, his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632, published in 2001, I believe. I, I like that. 2000. It was in 2000, yeah. I like that. Movement sounds much better than cult. It's a movement, yeah. It, it sounds well, like. I can tell you this. I, I just signed a contract with a uh, British TV production company who wants to make a TV series out of it. And in order to, to do it, though, because they didn't want to have to worry about legal issues, I needed to get quick claims from all the other authors who'd written in the series. Wow. And uh, it turned out there were almost 120 of them. Uh, I did manage to get quick claims from... Almost all, not quite all of them, but uh, enough that, that the uh, the TV people aren't worried about it now. The number of st- people that have not been reached wrote so many, so few stories, nobody's worrying about it. But and if any of you listening out there wrote in the universe for a Ring of Fire series and have not signed a quick claim for Eric, please let us know. <laughs> and please contact Eric. Not yes. <laughs> so uh, a little background on Eric. Now, that's fascinating to me. Uh, is his background prior to breaking in as a writer. Uh, if you had known him before, you might have said this is the least likely guy on the planet to ever be a Bain Books author. Uh, Eric grew up in California, more or less, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, Eric. Uh, around Fresno? Fresno? Well, no, mostly around Los Angeles. I did LA. live in the Fresno area for a few years, but mostly it was L.A., and then for five years I lived in Europe when I was a kid. Uh, and eventually got a master's in history from UCLA. Uh, and there he apparently decided he was a socialist and that academic socialists were a bunch of idiots at the same time, so he decided to put... His lack of money where his mouth was, or perhaps it was. I don't know. Uh, I should let you tell it, you tell it Eric. Yeah. Um, can you fill us in on some of your early background? Yeah, j- just being fair, it's not so much I think academic Marxists are idiots. Some are, but there are some who aren't. But the problem is that, that the academic life, there's a reason they call it the ivory tower. And, you know, it just is disconnected from, uh, it's certainly disconnected from reality of life of the working class and, if you propose to tell or argue with working class people what they ought to do, I sort of figured out I have some sense what their life was like. I had actually been working as a longshoreman while I was a graduate student because um, a friend of mine, one of my fellow graduate students, history department, his dad was a longshoreman. 
And one day I was complaining to him I was going to have to find some part-time job, and he said, oh, to hell with that minimum wage crap. He said, come on down with me to the hiring hall, and, you know, you can work one day and make twice as much money as you'll make working all week in a minimum wage job, which is true. Where were you working? Was it Long Beach? Uh, San Pedro. San Pedro Harbor. Mostly, mostly what you'd wind up getting was the work that the longshoremen did really want. So you could get work as a casual. as unloading banana boats and rawhides and coffee. And it's, it's brutally hard work, but it paid well. And then um, I wound up starting in a fall, uh, no, summer of 1970, I wound up working with truck drivers. Uh, there's a big Teamster Wildcat strike summer 1970 that coincided with the student strike around the May June events, the Cambodian Curgeon, that David Drake was actually involved in at the time. I didn't know him then, but he was there. Um, and I wound up organizing with some other people at UCLA, a support group for the truck drivers, and we worked with them quite a bit, worked with railroad workers. I eventually wound up, once I left school, becoming a truck driver myself for about a year, but I always had to work out of hiring halls, never able to get steady work at it, and eventually I decided this is a a little too chancy, so I wound up becoming a machinist apprentice. And uh, one way or another, I wound up spending the next, oh, 25 years working in basic industry. Um, off and on, probably mostly as a machinist, but I also worked as truck driver, crane operator, meat packer. I was a glass blower for a while in West Virginia. Uh, I had a lot of different kind of jobs. Now this, I mean, to me, it seems... You might could have done something else. It seems it seems like something you wanted to do. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it seems a bit romantic and quixotic in a, in a way. Do you <laughs> considering that you, you you know you're a guy with a big mental power going on here? With this, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know I don't regret any of it. It's I spent about thirty years of my life doing it. Well, let's talk about the Ring of Fire series. We'll segue from that. Maybe uh, you could. I'd, I'd be interested in how. That background has worked into the way that you've uh, you you approach history and your alternate history, if if it does at all. Well, um, it does in this certain sense. I don't. I try to be pretty scrupulous about not writing novels where my own political ideology sort of is. I'm not trying to shove it down anybody's throat. For one thing, I don't think that's very effective. Number one. Uh, I don't think people enjoy reading novels where somebody else's political views are being hammered on them. Uh, and secondly, I just don't think it's very effective. Uh, I could give a long explanation why, but what I do think fiction is good for is imparting or passing along certain broad ethical and social values. Um, but those are pretty broad. I mean, you know, a lot of people share them who might disagree with me on all kinds of political issues, but would nonetheless you know, share certain basic social attitudes. So what I basically wanted to do was write a story in which I took a reasonably representative small American town and put them in a really, really hard situation uh, and just have the way they react, you know, I don't know how you put it, explicate some of the basic, what I view are the basic underlying concepts of American society, American democracy. Uh, it's quite broad. There's no specific in it. I very consciously and deliberately, there is only one socialist character in this. I did finally put in a, uh, a socialist activist named Red Seibold. He doesn't even appear till about four books into the series, and he's a minor character, although he's going to figure out probably one book. Uh, he's actually based after a railroad worker right now. Um, so, I mean, it, it, he's a reasonably 
realistic character, but I only have one. I figured that's reason realistic yeah. enough in a town like that. Um, none of my other heroes are. That's not their political views. Yeah. That's not the point of it. But what you do see expressed is some of how I think people tend to take for granted a lot of the characteristics of a democratic society they don't even think much about. And, you know, you put them in this kind of a context 400 years ago, and, you know, and, and, and as one character put at one point, the most right-wing person in that American town is to the left of practically anybody else at the time, if you want to use those two. We should perhaps set up what the what the Ring of Fire 1632 series oh. is, just to make sure yeah, that that's everybody true. listening knows. The basic premise is simple. There's a cosmic accident, never mind the details, in a small town in northern West Virginia, a coal mining town. It's, it's, it's a fictional town named Granville, but I patterned it. I modeled it very closely after the real town of Mannington gets transposed in Mannington, time. Mannington, West Virginia. Mannington, West Virginia. It's in northern West Virginia, um, near Morgantown, Fairmont, and Clarksburg. There's a, uh, that's one of the big coal mining centers in West Virginia. The other ones are down further south. I picked that one because that's where I live, so I knew the area. Um, and they get transplanted in time and space. So the whole town, and physically the whole town, was a diameter of about six miles gets swapped with terrain in, in Germany, in the area of Germany called Thuringia. So this American town just literally gets plopped in the middle of Germany in the year 1631, right smack in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, which was probably the most destructive war in European history. It was more destructive even though two world wars. Would you, would you call that the cusp of the Dark Ages becoming the Renaissance, or was the Renaissance already in... This is past the Renaissance. Uh, this is what they call the early modern period. It's, uh, you're not anywhere near in the Middle Ages any longer. I We're mean, not in the Enlightenment, is... though, yet. Oh, no, no, you're not in the Enlightenment yet. You're still 17th century. The Enlightenment doesn't happen until the next century. Uh, what you you have Galileo's alive, Descartes is alive, Rembrandt's alive, Rubens is alive, King Charles of England and, and Oliver Cromwell alive, although the revolution hasn't happened. Rich, Cardinal Richelieu is running France. Gustavus Adolphus has just landed with his Swedish army in the north coast of Germany to intervene in the war. Uh, there's a lot of really fascinating historical figures alive and kicking at the time. Is that why you chose the period? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually had the idea of using a modern coal mining town to collect the protagonist. I had that idea for many years, but I was trying to figure out a setting for it. And then serendipitously, I was doing research on the Thirty Years' War for a different book I was thinking of writing, which I wound up never writing, but it occurred to me in the middle of reading the book on it, I thought, oh, this would be the perfect setting. Because the thing about 60, 30 years of war is it was a complete mess. I mean, it's a war that you don't read much about because the wars that tend, people tend to want to read about are ones like World War II or the American Civil War where, you know, it's kind of clear-cut and you can sort of draw arrows on maps. The 30 years war was just a bloody mess. I mean, it was 30 years of people just being slaughtered. And there's no, if you ever try Constantly to draw a map of the campaigns, alliances. it looks yeah. like a bowl of spaghetti. Mostly there's armies wandering all over Central Europe looking for some area they could plunder that nobody else had plundered yet. And then occasionally there'd be a battle because two armies would run into each other. That was about the extent of it. So I decided that would be the perfect kind of setting for the kind of story I wanted to tell. Well, let me uh, let me just mention some of the numbers on this uh, little story that you started uh, 
over 10 years ago now. We have, uh, by, by now, we have over 150,000 copies of the mass market, 1632, the first book in the series in print. And that's not counting the enormous amount of ebook sales and, and various other. We got 1.3 million Ring of Fire books in print. And, and you yourself, Eric Flint Books, or you associated with collaborators, have well over 2 million books in print by now. So things worked out from there. Your first novel was uh, Mother of Demons, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. then you went into a collaboration phase. Was sixteen thirty two the first book that you feel that you wrote as a as a somebody who passed the journeyman stage of the writing? Yeah, I'd say so, or at least yeah. That's not. I mean, I'm not sure I'd use that analogy exactly, but I see. I had my first novel written. Actually, it was not the first novel I wrote, but the first one I published. That was Mother of Demons. Then I went through several years working and learning a great deal from David Drake, working on the Belisari series, and and I learned a great deal from working with David. So that you know that experience is what then uh, got me set up to write sixteen. There were how many Belisarius books did you do? Six, six. So you had between Mother and Demons, and you had six novels under your belt. At that, uh, at that yeah. Uh, well, not quite because. Um, we hadn't published all the Belisarius books yet. I think, I think four of them had come out when I did sixteen thirty-two. I hadn't done all of them, and the final, sixth and final one actually got delayed for quite a while after that. I'm trying to remember. I'd have to actually go and look. I I remember when I first met David Drake it was actually a telephone conversation. This is back in nineteen ninety-seven. And I asked him how many books he'd published, and he said, I, I don't remember. And I remember thinking, <laughs> God, that's disgusting. <laughs> but, you know, the honest truth is, today I, have a, I actually have to think about it as to how many books I've written, and, and then I have to, you know, I'd have to actually go back and look at the record and remember exactly what year, what different ones came out. Now, the Belisarius books are about an alternate uh, Byzantine general, or Roman Roman well, that's their alter history. They're, I mean, I don't know how to put it. The general series that Drake did with Sterling is 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 what I would think of as an. I mean, yeah. it's, it's they basically took the real Belisari story and fictionalized it as science fiction. And then Jim liked the idea so much, he said, "Let's do it the other way around." So what I did with David was an alternate history, taking the real Belisarius in the real setting and changing the history. So yeah. however you want to describe that. He was a great. He was a great general yeah. of of, of yeah. amazing abilities. That that's somewhat little known because Byzantine history is, is somewhat little known. Those are great books, by the way. And I want you to tell me. We might as well talk about this now because my favorite Eric Flint piece of writing ever is your novella Islands, mm-hmm. uh, and that is, I believe, it's set in the the Belisarius. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's, and I eventually actually rewrote it somewhat and wove it into the last novel in the Belisar series, although it was originally written as a standalone novella. That's kind of an interesting story. That came about because Bill Fawcett was putting together an anthology called War Masters, and he asked me to write a novella for it, and I agreed, and uh, we agreed it was going to be a Belisar story, and, and then, to be honest, I forgot about it. And and then Bill called me up or sent me an email, I don't remember which, and was like, hey, where's my story? And so I had to write the thing in a big hurry. Um, and it's, I think, a terrific story. It really came out. I was very pleased with it when it came it's, out. I mean, it's touching, moving, it's heroic. 
It's really good. And Belisarius is not, he's a secondary character there. He's a very strong presence in the story. Yeah, he has a presence, but he's not the main character. The main characters are, uh, 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 the main characters are actually a, a minor character in the fifth book. And there's, yeah. and there's telegraphs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And all the alternate history, great stuff that you like from alternate history. If I would say, for if you really, if you've never read Eric Flint and you're looking for an entry point, that is not a bad place to, to, to You can start. get it in the, in the book called Worlds, which is a collection of uh, my shorter fiction. And it's, I think, the first story in there, if I remember right. For much more, including a bunch of Eric Flint links and more, check the Bain.com website. You'll also find that uh, March contest we mentioned there. And, of course, it is your gateway to the best science fiction and fantasy in the explored solar system, probably way, way beyond. That could be the greatest alternate history series within this sector, even. We don't know that <laughs> yet. So. So we're beginning a media segment where we discuss television shows, movies, non-book entertainment items, if you know what I mean, that might be of interest to Bain readers. We have with us Bain author Michael Z. Williamson, the creator of the Freehold series and author most recently of Freehold novel When Diplomacy Fails. Now, what a lot of you may not know is that Mike has some special knowledge we hope to draw on today. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Out there. Uh, today we're discussing the History Channel series Vikings. Now, for those who aren't familiar with it, this is a fictional series with characters, plots, settings, all that kind of stuff that, that plays on the History Channel on American TV at the moment. The show is about Ragnar Lodbrok, played by Australian actor Travis Fimmel uh, of Calvin Klein ad fame, one hears and his family and Viking buddies who set out for a bit of raiding in the West in complete disobedience to evil Earl Haraldson, uh, who is played by a very menacing Gabriel Byrne, or Byrne, the actor. Ragnar and company make landfall at the English Abbey of Landisfarne, and much Vikingness ensues. Now, I've been mightily impressed by this debut series so far. The acting is really good. Uh, and the period detail seems to be, to my untutored eyes, at least to be spot on. Now, Mike Williamson, in addition to being a science fiction art, author of great talent, uh, you have a special expertise in Vikings, having been one yourself. Can you explain that? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm not a Viking myself. Uh, my ancestry is from the west coast of Scotland, sorry, east coast of Scotland, and um, <clears throat> basically Viking ancestry. Uh Gunner, who was the, where Clan Gun came from, had two sons, William and Henry, and I'm a Williamson, and my, uh, paternal grandmother was, uh, Henderson. Um, so there's a lot of Viking ancestry in my past. I've, I've studied quite a bit. I do bladesmithing, and I've, uh, studied the era and, you know, the technology and that. The, it is, the show is well acted, uh, and they've done, uh, an entertaining presentation, but they played real fast and loose with history. Uh, for, for one thing, uh, Ragnar was about a century after Lindisfarne. Uh, we'll start with that. Right. He's <laughs> actually 830 in there in the Lindisfarne is, is late 700s. 793. So. Yeah. Yeah. 793 was Lindisfarne. June 8th. So yeah, they got him way off from there. Everyone knew that the British Isles existed. There was on, um, there'd been actually, Raids by the Scandinavians six years previous to that. 
the the Gates, the Saxons. Um, there, there was lots of ongoing small trade. So everyone knew the British Isles were there. Yeah, that this wasn't is, any surprise. And the Earl, Earl Haroldson in the series, seems to just be absolutely flabbergasted that there's anything out there. And it seems like, I mean, the people who live in England at the time are, are North, Nordic stock, right? This is after the migration. Um, Germanic. Germanic. Mm -hmm. the, the, the big issue with the Viking raids was that most of Europe by that point was Christianized. And most Christians even went out raiding or pillaging wouldn't attack a monastery because it was a holy site. Uh, the, the Scandinavians were still pagan. They didn't recognize it. They didn't care. And they were more than happy to raid, you know, unprotected gold at a monastery. That was a big part of it. It was just a, a difference in culture and recognition of, you know, it was like if someone were to start bombing hospitals, we'd be horrified. But as far as, say, the World War II Japanese, that was a perfectly legitimate technique of denying your enemy uh, refreshed troops. The big shock uh, in history is just that uh, Vikings showed up and, and raided a place that everyone thought had special uh, holy protection, not the fact that Vikings went west and discovered suddenly that there was England. Yeah, given their ship technology, once they knew there was available resources there, they started showing up en masse. Um, the climate was uh, was warming, it was very uh, pleasant. They were uh, increasing in numbers. They needed to expand, and whether they traded or raided depended in part on the reception they met. If they came upon a place that had a that was well defended, had lots of people then they'd try and set up trading. If they thought they could get the upper hand, well, then they'd, you know, start pillaging. And, you know, again, at that time, a lot of Europeans did that. Uh, they were just more successful because of the the ships they had and their sailing te technology. Uh, another thing I was wondering about and thinking about is the depiction of women in the uh, in the series. Now, I, I see that the writer, who is Michael Hirsch, uh, is trying to be all feminist and have Ragnar's wife, Lagerth, who is incredibly and possibly hot, by the way. I think we can agree on that. Uh, she's played by oh, Canadian. She, she's a good looking Viking woman. She's got the blonde hair, the sturdy mm -hmm. build. I think she's okay. <laughs> she's, she's played by a uh, Canadian actress, Catherine Winnick, uh, who reportedly has three black belts in various martial arts, by the way. Anyway, Hershitz made her a shield maiden sort of in retirement. Um, and she does a lot of hacking and hewing on random guys who show up at her house to rape her while Ragnar is off pillaging the Northumbrians. Um, and I, to me, it seems like Hirsch kind of misses a chance to portray women as the society's master manipulators and string pullers instead of showing her as like one of the boys. Do you agree or? In, in Scandinavian society, women had actually a uh, fairly significant status. Um, when, you know, if the, Man was away trading or raiding. The woman was in charge of the farm. It was not uncommon uh, for a, for a um, widow to wind up with a significant amount of power. Uh, yes, they, they wielded uh, social power, and uh, it was also uh, the, the, the ultimate insult to a man was for his son to decide to take uh, the mother's name rather than the father's name. Uh, that, that was considered, you know, that the, the woman was more of a man than the man was. Uh, there were occasional female warriors in that era. Um, they found a number of, in uh, Yorvik, York in England, they found a number of graves that originally they thought were male graves. 
uh, because of the grave goods, which included weapons and shields, uh, turned out to be female burials. Now, whether that was because they were warriors or because it was a status issue, because forging a sword was, at the time, required a lot of war, a lot of labor. Uh, they were very valuable items. So Hirsch might be on sturdy ground with his depiction of Lagerth. His wife is based on a probable historical figure who shows up in several cultures going back a couple hundred years, who had been captured, I believe, in Sweden and then uh, fought during the escape and campaigned uh, a bit. Yeah, so, she's, yeah a, she's a figure from Norwegian history, I believe, mentioned in Saxo Grammaticus and other, uh, and, and other later. And, and, yeah, and before that. I, I could go look it up. But yeah, there um, uh, similar named character is mentioned in a couple of other places. Yeah. All right. Um, so what's our assessment on the series so far? Will we keep watching? Uh, is it worth it? It's it's entertaining. Um, you know, it's not a history lesson. Most of their costumes are pretty good. I've got an issue with the sword slung across the back uh, because you can't draw a sword like that. Uh, you can transport a sword like that, but once you get where you're going to be fighting, you want it either... Uh, the, the tradition is to have it on the opposite side so you draw a cross. Uh, very frequently it was actually worn on the strong side so that when your shield is shoved against you, you still have it free on you know, and unhindered. If, you, if you've got your shield on your left side and the sword's under there and the shield gets shoved against you in the press, you can't draw your sword. Uh, same reason for wearing uh, sacks, the knife, uh, laterally across the front of the belt. Uh, they, they were carried so they could be drawn easily. Yeah. Were the, how were the scabbards attached to the belts, by the way? Um, they were either uh, either tied to a belt or frequently uh, from a baldric across the opposite shoulder, uh, which was put under the belt. Um, if, if, you, if you just hang a sword on a baldric, it flops around and gets in the way. So you put the belt over the bottom of the baldric. The baldric's taking the weight. The belt is holding it against the body so it doesn't flop around. Uh, their shoes their shoes were fairly accurate. Um, the leather tunics, probably not, but there's very little in, in the way of textiles that survived from that era to be positive. Yeah, textiles being one of the things that probably uh, decays. Right. We, we do know they're, um, they had very elaborate weaving. Uh, they did uh, tweeds, they did multiple wefts, they even did geometric textured uh, fabrics. Well, they had to make those sails. Yes. The boat, uh, boat was well done, and then, you know, turning uh, the sail into, one of the sails into a tent over it for, for bad weather is historically accurate. Excellent. Yes, wool sheds water. So thanks so mm -hmm. much uh, Thanks so much to Michael Z. Williamson. When Diplomacy Fails is only the latest of his excellent Freehold series about interplanetary mercenaries, somewhat Viking-like perhaps, uh, at least the Eastern Vikings, would you say, Michael? Well, more like maybe the Varangians. And we'll have much more uh, coming out from Mike at Bain. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. Have a good day. We like to ask Bain writers for a weekly writing suggestion for our listeners. Now, this can be whatever you want, but it's usually a seed crystal for a writer to take and shape into a piece of work. The result could be a paragraph, some flash fiction, a short story, or heck, even a novel. If your fingers don't get too tired trying to write it over the course of a week, the caveat is, is that you should do it by next week. 
Today we've got Frank Chadwick, the author of Bain's science fiction novel, How Dark the World Becomes, with your weekly suggestion. How Dark the World Becomes is a hard-hitting and idea-filled story of a small-time tough guy operator on a planet where humans are definitely second-class citizens. He finds himself in charge of a couple of alien kids on, on whom mankind's future in the known galaxy depends, and he has to save them or die trying. Hi, Frank. Hi. So can you, can you give us a writing suggestion for the coming week? Um, okay, I will. Um, the, uh, I've been uh, trying to work on some short story skills. And um, in the process of doing that, I've been reading, uh, uh, I've been reading uh, Rust Hill's book. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, on, on, on writing fiction in general and short stories in particular, I think is the name, which is a little bit of a mouthful. But it, based on that, he's got an interesting approach to what short fiction is about, and it, and it kind of prompted an exercise that I, that I think is useful. So here's my suggestion. I want people to write three sentences. Um, the first sentence is basically names a character, identifies a character, and shows that character doing something routine, something that they're, they, they do re- repeatedly in their life that shows something about the routine of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the right of the life that they're living. The second sentence um, is something that happens that interrupts that and, and the less significant the I mean, it's easy to say a meteor hits or you know aliens invade or something but it's actually the, the less significant an interruption in that routine the better something that just interrupts that routine. And then the third sentence is, how that interruption shows them the pattern of their life, and that they and that they're actually at a cross, that that, that they're a fork in the road, um, that that from this point on they can either do keep following the path they're following, or they can go off in a different direction. But if they don't make that choice right now, they're stuck in the life they're in. And do they really? Want, so this is so that's the fork in the road they find themselves in as a result of that minor seeming interruption and what does that that fork present them with and i think that's the essence of most really good short stories is that understanding of someone a character reaching a fork in the road of their life and they have to take one or the other and what are they going to do and then the story flows from that but those three sentences i think that'd be a good exercise oh it sounds great shall we call it put a fork in it the put a fork in it exercise <laughs> Yeah, let's call it that, because we have no shame, right? That's correct. (laughs) Now, here's something wonderful to complete our first Bane-free Radio Hour podcast. Beginning now, we will be serializing David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This is the new Honor Harrington novel, the sequel to A Rising Thunder, and the latest entry in David Weber's massively popular, multiply best-selling Honorverse series. We are very pleased to be teaming up with Audible.com to do this. This is Chapter 1. We'll be serializing Shadow of Freedom over the next weeks, chapter by chapter. Before each chapter, I'll provide a brief recap of what has gone before to bring listeners up to speed on where we are in the story. This excerpt from Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. You can get the complete audiobook at Audible.com right now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get Shadow of Freedom 
or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try audible.com for free for 30 days. I've been a subscriber to Audible for years, and I love it. All right, here we go. Chapter 1 in David Weber's Shadow of Freedom Audible Inc. presents Shadow of Freedom Written by David Weber Narrated by Allison Johnson February 1922, Post-Diaspora It'll be easier the next time, and there will be a next time. There always is. Frankello Osborne, Office of Frontier Security, Loomis System. Chapter 1 The wingless, saucer-like drone drifted through the wet, misty night on silent countergravity. The fine droplets of rain sifted down in filmy curtains that reeked of burned wood and hydrocarbons and left a greasy sensation on the skin. Despite the rainfall, fires crackled noisily here and there, consuming heaps of wreckage which had once been homes, adding their own smoke and soot to the atmosphere. A faint, distant mutter of thunder rolled through the overcast night, though whether it was natural or man-made was difficult to say. The drone paused, motionless, blacker than the night about it, its rain-slick, light-absorbent coat sucking in the photons from the smudgy fires which might otherwise have reflected from it. The turret mounted on its bottom rotated smoothly, turning sensors and lenses towards whatever had attracted its attention. Wind sighed wearily in the branches of sugar pine, crab poplar, and imported taran white pine and hickory. Something shifted in one of the piles of rubble, throwing up sparks and cinders. A burning rafter burned through and collapsed, and water dripped from rain-heavy limbs with the patient, uncaring persistence of nature. But otherwise, all was still, silent. The drone considered the sensor data coming to it, decided it was worth consideration by higher authority, and uploaded it to the communications satellite and its operator in far-distant Elgin City. Then it waited. The silence, the rain, and the wind continued, the fires hissed as heavier drops fell into their white and red hearts, and then the thunderbolt descended from the heavens like the wrath of Zeus. Born 265 kilometers above the planet's surface, it traced a white line from atmosphere's edge to ground level, riding a froth of plasma. The 200-kilo dart arrived without even a whisper, far outracing the sonic boom of its passage, and struck its target coordinates at 30 times the speed of sound. The quiet, rainy night tore apart under the equivalent of the next best thing to two and a half tons of old-fashioned TNT. The brilliant, blinding flash vaporized a bubble of rain. Concussion and overpressure rolled out from its heart, flattening the remaining walls of three of the village's broken houses. The fury of the explosion painted the clouds, turned individual raindrops into shining diamonds and rubies that seemed momentarily frozen in air, and flaming bits and pieces of what once had been someone's home arced upward like meteors yearning for the heavens. Thank you used a big enough hammer, Callum? The woman in the dark blue uniform of a lieutenant in the Loomis System Unified Public Safety Force asked dryly. She stood behind the drone operator's comfortable chair, looking over his shoulder at the display where the pinprick icon of the explosion flashed brightly. The operator, a sergeant with the sleeve hash marks of a 20-T-year veteran, seemed to hesitate for just a moment, then turned his head to look at her. 
Unauthorized movement in an interdicted zone, ma'am, he replied. And you needed a KEW to deal with it? The lieutenant arched one eyebrow. A near deer, do you think? Or possibly a bison elk? IR signature was human, ma'am. Must have been one of McRory's bastards, or he wouldn't have been there. I see. The UPS officer folded her hands behind her. As it happens, I was standing right over there at the command desk, she observed, this time with a distinct bite. If I recall correctly, SOP is to clear a KEW strike with command personnel unless it's time critical. Am I mistaken about that? No, ma'am, the sergeant admitted, and the lieutenant shook her head. I realize you like big bangs, Callum, and I'll admit you've got a better excuse than usual for playing with them, but there are regs for a reason, and I take it as a personal favor, the kind of favor which will keep your fat, worthless, trigger-happy arse in that comfortable chair instead of carrying out sweeps in the bush, if you'd remember that next time. Do you think you can do that for me? Yes, ma'am, the sergeant said much more crisply, and she gave him a nod that was several degrees short of friendly and headed back to her station. The sergeant watched her go, then turned back to his display and smiled. He'd figured she'd have a little something to say to him, but he'd also figured it would be worth it. Three of his buddies had been killed in the first two days of the insurrection, and he was still in the market for payback. Besides, it gave him a sense of godlike power to be able to call down the wrath of heaven— He'd known Lieutenant McRuer would never have authorized the expenditure of a KEW on a single, questionable IR signature, which was why he hadn't asked for it. And, if he was going to be honest about it, he wasn't really certain his target hadn't been a ghost, either. But that was perfectly all right with him, and his intense inner sense of satisfaction more than outweighed his superior's obvious displeasure. This time, at least, he amended silently. Yet you're in a bad mood, and the by-the-book bitch is just likely to make good on that reassignment. He shook his head mentally. Don't think I'd like slogging around in the woods with those people very much. Confirm impact, ma'am, Missile Tech First Class George Chasnikov reported. Looks like it drifted 15 or 20 meters to planetary west of the designated coords, though. He shook his head. That was sloppy. Was the problem at their end or ours? Lieutenant Commander Sharon Tanner had the watch. She also happened to be SLNS Hoplite's tactical officer, and she punched up the post-strike report on her own display as she spoke. I'm not real crazy about sloppy when we're talking about KEW's jazz. Me neither, ma'am. Chesnikov agreed sourly. Reason I brought it up, actually. He shook his head, tapping a query into his console. I hate those damned things, he added in a mutter Tanner knew was deliberately just loud enough for her to hear. She let it pass. Chasnikov was an experienced, highly valued member of her department, a lifer who would stay in SLN uniform until the day he died, and every TAC officer he ever served under would be lucky to have him. That bought him a little extra slack from someone like Sharon Tanner. Not that he didn't have a point, she thought bitterly, reflecting on all the things Hoplite and her small squadron had been called upon to do over the past few weeks. Compared to some of those, 
expending a single kinetic energy weapon on what had probably been a ghost target was small beer. Their end, it looks like, ma'am, Chasnikov said after a moment. It didn't miss the designated coordinates. It missed the amended coordinates. They sent us a correction, but it was too late to update the targeting queue. And did they happen to tell us what it was they wanted us to kill this time, or if we got it? No, ma'am, just the coordinates. Could have been one of their own battalions, for all I know, and no strike assessment so far. And there won't be one either, as usual, his expression added silently. I see. Tanner rubbed the tip of her nose for a moment, then shrugged. Write it up, Chaz. Be sure to make it clear we followed our checklist on the launch. I'll pass it along to Commander Diodoro. I'm sure he and the skipper will re-emphasize to groundside that little hiccups when you're targeting KEWs can have major consequences, and emphasize that they didn't give us a clear target description either. We can't go around wasting the taxpayers' KEWs without at least knowing what we're shooting at. And I hope Captain Vanelli uses that little memo to rip someone a new asshole, she added silently. Jazz is right. We've done too damned much of this kind of shit. I don't think there's anything left down there that's genuinely worth a KEW, and anything that discourages those bloodthirsty bastards from raining them down on some poor damned idiot with a pulse rifle schlepping through the shrubbery all by himself will be worth it. There were many things Sharon Tanner had done in her frontier fleet career of which she was proud. This wasn't one of them. Back in the shattered ruins, which had once been a village named Glen Mohia, the sound of rain was overlaid by the heavier patter of falling debris. It lasted for several seconds, sparks bouncing and rolling through the wet as some of the still-burning wreckage struck, and then things were still once more. The crater was dozens of meters across, deep enough to swallow an air lorry, and more than enough to devour the cellar into which the thirteen-year-old boy had just darted with the food he'd been able to scavenge for his younger sister. They got Thomas. Aaron McFadzine's voice was flat, worn and eroded by exhaustion and gradually swelling despair. She looked across the dingy basement room at Megan McLean, and her expression was bitter. Fergus just reported in. Where? McLean asked, rubbing her weary eyes and clenching her soul against the pain of yet another loss. Rothes, McFadzine replied. The U.P. stopped the lorry on its way into Makasak. Is he alive? McLean lowered her hands, looking across the older woman. Fergus doesn't know. He says there was a lot of shooting, and it sounds like he was lucky to get away alive himself. I see. McLean laid her hands flat on the table in front of her, looking down at their backs for a moment, then inhaled deeply. It shamed her to admit it, but she hoped Thomas McPhee hadn't been taken alive, and wasn't that a hell of a thing to be thinking about a friend she'd known for thirty T years. See if we can get in touch with Todd Ogilvy, she said after a moment. Tell him Thomas is gone. He's in charge of whatever we've got left outside the capital now. On it, 
McFadzine acknowledged and quietly left the room. As the door closed behind her, McLean allowed her shoulders to sag with the weariness she tried not to let anyone else see. Not that she was fooling anyone, or that everyone else wasn't just as exhausted as she was, but she had to go on playing her part to the bitter end. At least it wouldn't be too much longer now, she thought harshly. It wasn't supposed to be this way. She'd organized the Loomis Liberation League as a legal political party seven years ago, during one of the Prosperity Party's infrequent bouts of facade democracy. She hadn't really expected to accomplish anything. This was Hallkirk, after all. But she'd wanted McMinn and McCrimmon to know there were at least some people still willing to stand up on their hind legs and voice their opposition. The LLL's candidates had actually won in two of the capital city's boroughs, giving it a whopping four-tenths of a percent of the seats in the parliament, which had made it the most powerful of the opposition parties. It probably wouldn't have won those races if the Prosperity Party hadn't been putting on a show for the Core World News crew, doing a documentary on the Silver Oak logging camps, of course, but two seats were still two seats. Not that it had done any good, and not that either of the LLL's members had won re-election after the news crew went home. President McMinn hadn't even pretended to count the votes in the next general election, and that was the point at which Megan McLean had listened to Thomas McPhee, the LLL's vice chairman, and McFadzine. She'd maintained her party's open organization, its get-out-the-vote-and-lobbying campaigns, but she'd also let McFadzine organize the Liberation League's thoroughly illegal provisional armed wing. It had probably been a mistake, she thought now, yet she still couldn't see what other option she might have had not with the unified public safety force turning more and more brutal and worrying less and less about maintaining even a pretense of due process under Secretary of Security McQuarrie. Except, of course, to have given up the effort completely, and she simply hadn't been able to do that. And now this. Seven years of effort, of pouring her heart and soul into the liberation of her star system, and it ended this way in death and disaster. It wasn't even... She looked up again as the door opened and McFadzine walked back into what passed for their command post. I got a runner off to Tad, she said, and her lips twitched in a mirthless smile. Somehow, I didn't think I should be using the comm under the circumstances. Probably not a bad idea, McLean agreed with what might have been the ghost of an answering smile, if that was what it was, it vanished quickly. It was bad enough with just the Yuppies tapping the comms, with the damned Sollies up there listening in. Her voice trailed off, and McFadzine nodded. She understood the harsh, jagged edge of hate which had crept into McLean's voice only too well. They had Frankello Osborne, the Office of Frontier Security's advisor to McMinn's Prosperity Party, to thank for the Solarian League Navy starships in orbit around the planet of Hulkirk. Officially, Osborne was only a trade attaché in the Solarian legation in Elgin, the Loomis system's capital. Trade attachés made wonderful covers for OFS operatives assigned to assist and advise independent Verge star systems when their transstellar masters felt they stood in need of a little outside support— and if an attaché required a certain degree of assistance from the SLN, he could usually be confident of getting it. 
We could have taken McCrimmon and Macquarie on our own, McFanzine thought bitterly. We could have. Another few months, a few more armed shipments from Partisan and his people, and we'd have had a fighting chance to kick the LPP straight to hell. Hell, we might have pulled it off even now, if not for the damn Sollies. But how in God's name are people with pulsers and grenade launchers supposed to hold off orbital bombardments? If I'd only been able to get word to Partisan. But she hadn't. They hadn't been supposed to move for a minimum of at least another four months. Partisan had been supposed to be back in Loomis to lock down the final arrangements, the ones she hadn't yet discussed even with McLean, and there hadn't been any way to get a message out when the balloon went up so unexpectedly. She glanced across the room again, wondering if she should have told McLean about those arrangements with Partisan. She'd thought about it more than once, but secrecy and security had been all important. Besides, McLean wasn't really a revolutionary at heart. She was a reformer. She'd never been able to throw herself as fully into the notion of armed resistance as McFadzine had, and the thought of relying so heavily on someone from out-system, of crafting operations plans which depended on armed assistance from a foreign star nation, would have been a hard sell. Be honest with yourself, Aaron. You were afraid she'd tell you to shut the conduit down, weren't you? That the notion of trusting anybody from outside Loomis was too risky— that they were too likely to have an agenda of their own, one that didn't include our best interests. You told yourself she'd change your mind if you could present a finished plan that covered all the contingencies you could think of. But inside, you always knew she still would have hated the entire thought, and you weren't quite ready to go ahead and commit to partisan without her okay, were you? Well, maybe she would have been right, but it wouldn't have made any difference in the way things have finally worked out, now would it? She looked up at the command post's shadowed ceiling, her eyes bitter with hate for the starships which had rained down death and ruination all across her homeworld, and wished with all her exhausted heart that she had been able to get a messenger to Partisan. That was Chapter 1 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This excerpt of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com, where you can get the complete audiobook. And that's the show for now. I want to thank Jim Menz, Hank Davis, the wonderful Eric Flint, the Viking-like Michael Z. Williamson, tough guy writer Frank Chadwick, and Audible.com. Join us for the next podcast, and until then, keep reading Bane books and keep reaching the stars.